the Christian faith, and I'm going to do that tonight and do a primer upon baptism. So take your Bible and turn to Acts chapter 2. We're kind of taking this little short sabbatical from our journey through the Psalms one by one. Um, we will get back on course by the will of God, and we'll be picking back up in the 75th Psalm. But tonight, I just want to take a little time to rehearse a truth to many of us is very familiar. But the basics of the Christian faith need to be heralded again and again and again. And the doctrine of baptism is one of those foundational cardinal doctrines that we revisit from time to time uh, just to resharpen us, to refresh us, to bring back before us the meaning of this great doctrinal truth given us in Scripture for God's people to obey because it is given to Christian people as a command from the Lord. It's a very critical and important Christian ordinance. And we know that in the Christian church, there are only two ordinances the Lord has called us to observe. And the first is baptism and the second is the Lord's table, both of them critically important. The text I've chosen tonight is Acts chapter 2. We're going to look at verse 37 through 41. There are so many different texts that I could have chosen, but this one will um, be useful to us, I do believe. Starting in verse 37, we know contextually that the day of Pentecost had fully come. We know that the gospel has been preached by the Apostle Peter and the power of the Holy Spirit and that there were many that were pricked in their hearts. Uh, many that heard the gospel concerning the Lord Jesus Christ and that they were moved upon by the Holy Spirit. They were convicted of sin. They were convicted of the Lord of glory being crucified for their sin and they called out upon the name of the Lord, and that day there were, there were many, many thousand, 3,000 souls, verse 41 tells us, that were converted and brought into the kingdom of God, and consequently they were baptized. And so this is the background, this is the day of Pentecost, this is the beginning, the inauguration of the kingdom of God, this is the bringing in of the kingdom, this is the birthing of the church that we have before us. Verse 37 through 41, starting with verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. Now, when it says when they heard this, this is Peter's exposition at Pentecost. That he took the word of God and he proclaimed the gospel and brought it to bear upon the hearts of the people. So when they heard his proclamation, his sermon about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, they were pierced to the heart, it says in verse 37, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brothers, what should we do? This is the right question to be asked whenever our sins come to bear upon our souls and they begin to bother us and we are convicted by the Holy Spirit. Whenever we are pierced, the right question to that experience is, what shall we do? What should we do? And Peter said to them, repent, metanoia in the Greek, turn away from your sins and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly bore witness and kept on exhorting them saying, be saved from this crooked Generation, Verse 41, so then those who had received his word were baptized 
in that day, they were added about 3,000 souls. Verse 42 goes on, and they continued devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. Let's go to the Lord and ask for his blessing tonight. Lord, we come to you and ask for you to be with us, the Holy Spirit, to speak to our hearts through the inspired scriptures. And Lord, that we would learn the word of God, that we would submit ourselves to the word of God. And Lord, that we would see that this truth, this truth and this doctrine of baptism is something critical for every Christian and in the life of the church. Now, Lord, we ask that you would be with us in this time for Christ's sake. Amen. So I want to, in my outline, makes three simple arguments. First, I want to argue out the meaning of baptism from our text, and then the mandate for baptism, and then the method, which will be my shortest point. The first we want to come to is that the meaning of baptism. What does it mean to be baptized? And the first sub-point under this is that baptism is a biblical ordinance, is something that has been ordained by our Lord Jesus Christ to be perpetually practiced in the context of the local church. Our Confession of Faith from 1689, the London Baptist Confession says, Baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ to be unto the party baptized, note this, a sign of his fellowship with him in his death, resurrection, of his being engrafted into him, of remission of sin, and of giving up into God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in the newness of life. It's a sign of our fellowship with Christ, fellowship with his death, burial, and resurrection, and of our being engrafted or being in a union with him. It is a vis visible token, a visible sign of an inward work of God's grace in our lives. I said that baptism is a biblical ordinance, but what is that? What is a biblical ordinance? And the answer to that question is that it is something that Jesus commanded or Jesus ordained in a way that would make it an ongoing practice in the life of the church. Dr. John Gill wrote around 500 years ago that baptism is not a church ordinance. It is an ordinance of God and a branch of public worship. It's an ordinance of God. We're very familiar with Matthew chapter 28 and the Great Commission, especially coming off of our week of um, missions engagement and the refreshment that we have for the the teaching of Christ, the command of Christ to go and to make disciples. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Now listen to this. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I'm, all, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. The main verb in that text is having gone... Make disciples of all nations. That's the way the Greek would render it. The New Testament was written in Koine Greek. But note that the defining participles of that text are baptizing them and teaching them. We're to go, and what are we to do when we go? We are to make disciples by baptizing them and teaching them. And so the church has been entrusted with this great commission that we call it. 
and that we are to do this for all disciples, making disciples of all the nations. And part of discipleship is baptism, being baptized. And even Jesus tells to us the time frame in this text that we're to do this, and that he's with us even unto the end of the age. And so baptism is an ordinance, but more than that, it's a command from the Lord for all generations in the church. It's an ordinance of the Lord that is to be performed in the making of disciples, and we're to do this until Jesus comes back at the end of the age. And obviously we all hold hold wholeheartedly to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But note that this is a critically important ordinance ordained by Christ. So we see that it is a biblical ordinance. The second thing is that it's an expression, baptism is an expression of our union with Christ. In Romans chapter 6, you're free to turn there if you want, we see here that baptism is an expression of our union together with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. In Romans chapter 6, verse 3 and 4, Paul writing to the believers in Rome, this church that was established there, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in the newness of life. So we see here that this idea of baptism is a partaking of the death and burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is symbolized in this ordinance of baptism. Now we do want to clarify and make known that baptism does not have any saving efficacy. What do I mean by that? You are not saved because you're baptized. You're saved by faith in Christ. We believe the Bible teaches from Genesis to Revelation that a man is justified before God by faith and not by works. So it would be wrong for us to think that baptism is a quote-unquote means, if you will, of our union with Christ. It is not a means of our union with Christ. It is an expression of it. It is a symbol of it. It is a picture of it. You know, we are brought into union with Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration, that he is the one that joins us to Christ by faith in his name. So faith is the means that unites us or joins us to Christ. We're saved by faith alone in Christ alone. But nevertheless, we visualize this faith. We signify and symbolize this faith by baptism. Faith unites us to Christ and baptism symbolizes the union. One one, uh, scholar wrote that the ordinance of baptism simply sets forward in visual form that which we have in the scriptures in verbal form. And I like what he says, that it simply sets forward in visual form that which we have in the scriptures in verbal form. So the imagery set forward in baptism is that of death, burial, and resurrection. Just as Christ was crucified, buried, and raised to new life, in baptism, and it's by faith, we are united with Christ in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection. 
that baptism gloriously and biblically visualizes what has happened to us spiritually when we believed upon Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Romans chapter 6 tells us in verse 3 that we died with him, that we've been united with him in his death by baptism, that our old man of unbelief, our old man of rebellion, our old man of idolatry has died, that there has been an end to this lifestyle that we are now in Christ Jesus and we've been raised to walk in a new and a living way. That there's a new life was given to us by faith in Christ alone and it's characterized by submission to Christ and a love, by, a love for Christ. But whenever you are baptized, you confess to the world of the reality of this new life that you have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our baptism sets forward the testimony that I am His, that I have a new life that is God-centered, that I have a new life because of Jesus Christ, that my old life is left behind, and the new life that I have is by faith in Christ alone. The next feature we want to talk about in baptism is that it is an expression of the Trinity, the Trinitarian work in our salvation um, baptism is by immersing the person in water in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We get that in Matthew 28, 19, where Jesus says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Just for clarity's sake, they, we need to understand that the invoking or the including of the Trinity is not some mystical or magical formula for a successful baptism service. It's more than that. It's a comprehensive statement of the union that believers have with the entire Godhead, that we are united with Him. We're united with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the phrase Father, Son, and Holy Spirit embodies the wholeness, the fullness of our triune God. It encompasses all that God is. It encompasses all that God has, all that God represents three in one. When we're baptized, we are identified with everything that God is. We're identified with all that God has and all that he represents. And then finally, baptism is representative of what our triune God has accomplished on our behalf in salvation. And in this, we honor the work of each member of our triune God and what they've accomplished on our behalf, i.e., the Father has chosen a people unto salvation. The Bible clearly teaches this. And so the Father has given a people to the Son. This is the language of John in John 17 and in John chapter 6 and other places in the Gospel of John. And that the Son has come out of the bosom of the Father and into time. And that he has put on a body of flesh like what we have, although without sin. And that he lived the perfect life in our behalf and went to the cross and died a substitutionary death where our sins were reckoned to him. And God treated Christ in the way that he should have treated you and me. And so the Son has purchased our redemption upon the cross by His own death, and then the Holy Spirit is taking the redemptive purchase of Christ and brought it to bear upon each one of us in regeneration and convicting us and indwelling us 
The Holy Spirit is applied and is applying in our sanctification, working out what Christ has wrought on the cross in our lives. And so whenever we baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that we are giving honor to each of them in, uh, in, in what they've accomplished on our behalf in salvation, the Father in electing, the Son in redeeming, and the Holy Spirit in applying the work of Christ to our lives. The next truth is, my second Roman numeral is the mandate for baptism. The first thing we see underneath that heading is that it is a believer's ordinance. Baptism is for Christians. Baptism is for those that have believed the message of the gospel. Back to our text, look at verse 41 with us. It says, so then those who had received his word were baptized. Let me say that again. Those who received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. The word received there in the Greek language gives the idea of welcoming. Those who welcomed his word, those that believed his word were baptized. The London Baptist Confession, which is our statement of faith, says those who actually do profess repentance towards God and faith in and obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ are the only proper subjects of this ordinance. That baptism is a believer's ordinance. We do not believe that anyone is saved by baptism, that we are saved prior to baptism. It's been said many times that baptism is the, the first act of a Christian's obedience, that we obey Christ. So this New Testament uh, reality defines baptism as an expression or a testimonial of our faith in Christ. So baptism is not for the unbeliever. Baptism is not applicable to infants as some uh, believe. It's a public profession of faith. It's a believer's first act of obedience. It's an ordinance for believers only. And it is a token of church membership. Remember verse 19 of Matthew 28 where Jesus said, Therefore go and make disciples of all the nations. And once they've been made disciples... We baptize them. So it is a believer's ordinance. Let me give you a little further biblical evidence for this. Acts 2.41 in our text, we see that at Pentecost, 3,000 souls received the word preached. They were converted and then they were baptized. If you'll flip a couple of pages to Acts, Acts chapter 8, we see the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. He believed upon Christ he had his chariot stopped immediately so that he could be baptized. He believed with all of his heart. In Acts chapter 9, we're familiar with the story of the Apostle Paul's conversion. Remember, this is a man that was a persecutor of the church. He was confronted by Christ. And he went and he believed and then he was baptized in Acts 9, 18. So his baptism was subsequent to his conversion. In Acts chapter 10, whenever Cornelius and the members of his household were saved, Peter ordered them to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were saved and then baptized. And then if you'll turn on to Acts chapter 18, verse 8, 
There were unbelievers there in the, in the city of Corinth that had come to saving faith in Christ in verse 8, and they were immediately baptized. And then you flip the page again to Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 5, when Paul had found some of, John, some of John's disciples at Ephesus who had only been baptized with the baptism of repentance. They were told about Christ. They were, they were not believers. They had not submitted themselves to the lordship of Christ. But whenever they heard the gospel, they believed, and then they were baptized after they believed. That's in Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 5. <clears throat> Paul would go on to write to the Christians at Galatia and said, As many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You have already put on Christ, so you were baptized into Christ. So Paul there declares that baptism is the outward sign of the inward work of the Holy Spirit of God. It is the outward sign of the inward work of the Holy Spirit. And I would argue that it's impossible to find credible evidence in the New Testament to support baptism as being for anyone other than believers, for Christian people. And that would include not baptizing infants because infants are not believers yet. They have not understood the gospel. They've not realized their need for a savior. They've not felt the sting of the law regarding their sins, nor can they appreciate and understand the gospel of Jesus Christ yet. The second feature here, not only is it a believer's ordinance, it is an expression of local church membership. And through the scriptures we see this, that baptism is closely connected to our membership in the local church, that the local church is an expression of redeemed people. So we believe in regenerate membership at Grace Life prior. It's an expression of redeemed people. It's where redeemed people come together collectively and corporately. We have to ask the question, why do we gather on Sunday? Why do we gather on the Lord Day? The Lord's Day is an expression of our faith. It's an expression of our faith, but it's more than that. We gather together for worship. And in the New Testament, being a Christian and being baptized and then coming into the membership of a local church were linked together. And the Lord added to the church. They're baptized and the Lord added to the church over and again. In an article written by Jim Eliff and Daryl Wingard, we read, in our view, baptism and membership in a local church are inseparable, the former necessarily preceding the latter. According to Christ's command, we are obligated to baptize every disciple. We simply refrain from receiving them as members until they understand correctly and submit voluntarily to Christ's command. Our willingness to receive unbaptized disciples into membership is not our way of saying they are not Christians, it is simply our way of saying that we as a church have no obligation to publicly acknowledge them as Christians, i.e. by receiving them into membership until they've been baptized. And I will argue that there is a golden chain that links baptism, baptism to church membership. That baptism expresses our union together with Christ and church membership expresses our union together with Christ's church. And that there is a link together there. And more than that, in baptism we proclaim to the world 
that we belong to Jesus Christ, that it is a public testimony of our union together with Jesus Christ. Church membership then holds us accountable to our confession. You will see here at Grace Life Church time and again whenever we have a baptism that there is simultaneously a joining of the local church because they're making a public profession that I belong to Christ. They're professing Christ as Lord and in membership they're saying walk alongside me and hold me accountable to what I just expressed and testified to in the waters of baptism. So those go hand in hand. The third feature about baptism is that it is a gospel picture. Turn with me in your Bible to Romans chapter 6. This is just to the right of the book of Acts, a couple of, a couple of chapters over. In Romans chapter 6, that baptism is a pictorial of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 4, look at it with me. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. This is gospel language, isn't it? Buried. Christ died on the cross and was buried. Christ died through death, into death. Christ went to the cross to bear our sins in his body on the tree, that he died on the cross. He gave his life up. But not only that, he was raised from the dead, as we see in the, in the latter part of verse 4, that he was raised from the dead. So this is all gospel language. He died, that he was buried, that he was risen from the dead, so that in baptism that there is a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is brought to bear in our life spiritually, that we were dead in our sins and transgression, that the old man was living itself out, death upon death, that God came to us through the gospel, confronted our sins. We believe the report of the Lord, the Holy Spirit was at work in our heart, and that these old things were, they're passed away. But in baptism, we have a glorious picture of that. When you enter the waters of baptism, you go under the water. It is a visual picture of death, that we're leaving that behind and we're raised up in the newness of life. It is a portrait, it's a portrait of the gospel of Jesus Christ that's put on display in many ways like the Lord's table. The Lord's table is a, a picture of the, the blood of Christ. It is a picture of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is to remind us of the gospel. And also this other glorious ordinance of baptism reminds us of the power and the glory and the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Dr. John Frame wrote in his Systematic Theology, Listen to this, baptism pictures the gospel and the gospel is about the forgiveness of sins. Scripture does not say, as some do, that baptism is the new birth or that our forgiveness comes through baptism, but it pictures forgiveness so that people who are baptized as well as those who witness the ceremony will know what the gospel says, that God offers cleansing and forgiveness in Christ. So here we have this renowned theologian bringing this down into, into ordinary language that baptism 
pictures the gospel. Baptism puts on display in a visual form what God has done in our hearts in an invisible way that we have been forgiven. It pictures the forgiveness of those people who are forgiven by God. So whenever you are baptized, not only do you obediently submit to the Lord's ordinance, you also display the work of the cross in your life. You're making a declaration that the death of Jesus Christ, the burial of Jesus Christ, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ has impacted you. That you've been changed by it. You're not who you were because of it. And our baptism visually and tangibly and gloriously sets this on display in picture form. You're declaring the power of the atoning work of Jesus Christ in your life by baptism. And just as in the Lord's table, those who partake, it says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-six, 26, and this is the second of the ordinances given to the church, those who partake of the Lord's table do show the Lord's death until he comes. And baptism, in like way, pictures the gospel. It pictures the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ and your unitedness with him in it. Verse 3 of Romans 6, Paul says, Know ye not that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. We put on display the effect of the Lord's death in our life, that I'm not who I was, that I've been changed, that the cross has wrought its power in me, that the gospel has affected me, and that whenever we are baptized, we symbolize and we put on display the gospel and its power and efficacy in our lives. So in baptism, once again, we picture the Lord's death and the Lord's resurrection. My last point is the method of baptism. And again, I know that in many ways I'm preaching to the choir, but then again, I may not be. We need these pivotal doctrines of the faith rehearsed again and again in our hearts and in our minds. The method of baptism, biblically speaking, is that you are immersed into water. Immersion. Baptizo in the Greek language, this is Koine Greek, expresses the action of immersing someone into water. And just as Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4 describes baptism as a burial and a resurrection, it proclaims the believer's death to sin and the resurrected new life in Christ. But the act itself means to immerse someone. Not only do we have this exegetically in our Bibles with the word baptizo, but also historical evidence supports this was the practice of the early church. It's also thoroughly supported exegetically, meaning in the language of Scripture. Let me give you some instances. Acts chapter 8, if you want to turn there, you can. 
This is go back to the left a little bit in Acts chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 36 and verse 36 through 39. We're all familiar with this story with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. We know that it says in verse 35, Philip opened his mouth and beginning from this scripture, he proclaimed the good news. This is the gospel about Jesus to him. And as they went along the road, they came to some water in verse 36. And the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all of your heart, you may. So again, this reinforces the argument I made earlier about a believer's ordinance Philip here says, if you believe with all of your heart, you might. He answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water. Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. And look at verse 39. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. And so to me, it seems clear in this passage that they went down into the water and then they come up out of the water. So I see here the act of immersion. By the way, this was practiced in the early church. Even some of the early um, Presbyterian brothers that believe in infant or in sprinkling, the sprinkling mode of baptism would say exegetically the word, even Calvin mentioned this, that the word literally means to immerse. The second is found in John chapter 3, verse 23, where it talks about John baptizing near Salim because there was much water there, it says. And the people were coming out to be baptized of him. There was much water there. So again, it gives, it lends itself anyway to the idea of baptism by immersion. This is not a sprinkling situation that there was a, um, the, the baptism itself was being taken place there because of the plenteous or the copious amount of water that was there. And then even in the baptism of our Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, where it talks about Christ after he was baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water as if he was baptized and taken down into the water and baptized and raised up again out of the water. The London Baptist Confession of Faith says this outward element is to be used in this ordinance. It is, is, is water wherein the party is to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Immersing or dipping of the person in the water is necessary to the due administration of this ordinance. Immersion or dipping a person out un, underneath the water is necessary to the due administration of this ordinance. Charles Spurgeon once wrote, he said, Baptism, if not essential to your salvation, is essential to your obedience. If a man refuses to do it, he thereby proves that he does not intend to be a disciple of the Master. This is a powerful statement. That if a man refuses, if a person that claims to be a believer refuses to be baptized, he only proves that he does not intend to be a disciple of Christ. So let me end by saying and asking the question, have we been obedient to Christ? 
Are we so identified with him in this way? Have we so given our testimonial that we are Christ and the saving work of Christ in our heart and then this being visualized by being baptized in water? This is not something that is optional because whenever the Lord gave the command to go in to make disciples, he says baptizing them, and this is not a suggestion, it is an imperative Verb, meaning it's a command from Christ to baptize them. So have we been biblically baptized since we have been saved? I was baptized twice as a heathen. (laughs) Remember, I was seven years old, a little boy, and in our denomination, you had to be baptized before you could take communion. And I wanted that little cup of that juice and that little cracker because we didn't have those at home, and we we were poor. And so I had a false confession. And then again, whenever my wife and I were dating and had, were going to be married, we both joined Ader First Baptist Church, and you had to be baptized to join the church. There was no questioning whether or not I was a true Christian. There was no observing of my life. And then they baptized me, and I was a twofold child of the devil. Still drinking, still getting drunk, still partying, fighting, cussing like a sailor. I mean, there was zero evidence of being a child of God. So I was baptized two times as a heathen, but yet I was not biblically baptized because I was unregenerate. And then subsequent to my conversion in 1987, after I had been saved, I was later baptized and immersed in water. And what, what point am I making? Have you been baptized since you have come to know Christ in a saving way. Have you publicly confessed Christ? This is something that we believe wholeheartedly that in baptism that we are proclaiming Christ as our Lord. And that there's a union together with this in our church membership because we're saying Christ is my Lord and we're saying in church membership, will you walk with me and hold me accountable to the testimony that I've given to the entire church? that I need you, that I need you to walk with me. I need you to, be account- to hold me accountable to this profession of faith, that I have this declaration that I've made in this baptism, both verbally of what I've witnessed Christ doing in my life and proclaimed to you, but also in the ordinance itself and what it sets forth, that I need you to walk with me and hold me accountable to my confession of faith. Professor John Murray once wrote, Depreciation of baptism insults the wisdom and grace of God, and more particularly, it depreciates and insults his faithfulness. So let me just ask in closing, what would prevent our obedience and being baptized? Pride, fear. The Bible says the fear of man brings a snare. And maybe it's just simple negligence. I mean, good intention and well-meaning Christians can be negligent in big things. And let me just ask this question of all of us. Why would we deny the Lord Jesus Christ his right to display his saving work in our life? It's a powerful question. It's not inconsequential. It's a command of the Lord. It's an important ordinance of the Lord. 
And what would it be that would cause our delay? The Lord Jesus Christ commanded baptism. The early church baptized believers before they added them to the church. Baptism is inseparably connected to conversion as an expression of saving faith. And then Jesus commanded us to repent and believe the gospel and immediately followed saying, be baptized. As an act of obedience to him. To make a public profession of faith. To put on display the saving work of the grace of God in your life. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Father who's chosen us, the Son who has paid the redemptive price, and the Holy Spirit that has brought it to accomplishment in our hearts, in justification, ongoing sanctification, and the future glorification of our souls. Once again, I said this from the very get-go, that this is a primer. It's a refresher. This is a cardinal doctrine of the church. It is a commandment of our Lord Jesus Christ, and may we be faithful. Amen? And may we be obedient. Lord, we're so thankful for the time that we've had tonight in this primer, this refresher upon this critical truth of baptism. Lord, move upon our hearts. Lord, I pray if there be any here, Lord, that have not believed the saving gospel of Christ, that they would put their faith in Christ and follow in the waters of baptism in an act of obedience, putting forward in pictorial form what you've done in their hearts and in their souls. Lord, thank you for this time. I pray for each family that is represented here. Lord, those that have come to Grace Life Church, our visitors tonight, I pray that you'd work in our hearts to conform us to Christ and bless us with the fullness of the blessings that only God can give in and through his Son. Lord, be with us, Lord, as we go. Lord, may our hearts burn, having been together with the people of God and heard the word of God being opened up and unpacked in the power of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, may we want to give you all of our heart and make, make your glory the primary purpose of our life to glorify you because of your worth and who you are. Be with those who are sick among us. Lord, be with Miss Debbie Bonham as she's continuing in her plight against cancer. Lord, may we be the hands and feet of Christ that carry hope and help to her. Lord, may we continually remember her in prayer and lift her up to the throne of grace. Lord, be with those that are struggling under conviction. Bring them through to Christ. Lord, I pray for our teenagers that you would save them thoroughly and finally, that you would convict them of sin and draw them by the cords of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, that they would repent and believe the saving message of the gospel. Lord, we pray for our little children, that you would save them in the fullness of time. Lord, that you would save them and that you would convict them and that you would cause them to believe this truth about Jesus Christ. Lord, be with our small group leaders that they'll teach with wisdom. Be with each member, Lord, as they're going through navigating life, that they would be led of the Holy Spirit of God. Lord, bless the teachers of our children, Lord, and may we in all of our hearts and all of our lives honor you above all else. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.